quiet side of the room, loud side of the room. We're working it. I am going to. Uh, I'm going to have us pray. That'll get everybody quiet. Yeah, yeah, let's see the word prayer got everybody quiet. Well, hey, good morning. I These uh, did not get passed down here, these trunk or treat things. So this is one per section. And uh, thanks for being a part of this outreach that we'll be doing at the end of this month. And uh, it was quite a success last year, and we look forward to it being stronger. Just pass that back through in your section. And uh, don't pass it by. Sign up for something, uh, especially with the candy issue. Um, and we had 26 cars, I think, last week, last year decorated. So uh, we'd love to have yours. My environment for worship today is great. Last week, though, my environment for worship was far different. As some of you know, my wife and I had uh, the privilege of being gifted, a, in part, a trip to Europe, and uh, we went with our two oldest boys. Uh, we missed our two younger ones on the trip, but it was a blessing to be with Ryan and Zach and me with my wife, Melissa, and the four of us were at Westminster Abbey, and uh, the environment here is just a little different because you can get up and do what we just did. I was so scared at Westminster Abbey that I might do the wrong thing. It's so proper, and you got to make sure you don't step out of line kind of deal, but it was a beautiful experience. And um, following being at Westminster Abbey, we got on uh, some tubes, some of the subways, and uh, made our way to another church that's famous in London, and that is uh, the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Anybody know who used to preach there? Charles Spurgeon preached there for a number of years and had opportunity to go inside of that church, talk to one of their lay pastors, and actually stand up in a pulpit area in the big room that uh, Spurgeon would have preached at. He was a Baptist preacher and well-known um, during that era of time in reaching London and, and her messages. And then we uh, got on a, another tube ride and went a little bit further, and we got out uh, on a street where uh, John Wesley's chapel was. And so we were able to see John Wesley's chapel. We got there just a little too late to be able to go in and to be a part of that church experience. But across the road from John Wesley's chapel was an old cemetery. And I said to my family, I want to go in that old cemetery. I bet there's some important, famous people buried in that cemetery. And you walked into the cemetery, old, old tombstones, moss over everything, that kind of stuff. And sure enough, got to the center of it. And uh, there was a big tomb there for John Bunyan. Some of you may know who John Bunyan is. He wrote Pilgrim's Progress. And off in a little bit distance was uh, John Wesley's mother, Susanna Wesley. And uh, then around the corner in another section of that cemetery uh, was Isaac Watts, who uh, wrote a lot of the hymns uh, that we have for our hymnology. Uh, when I survey the wondrous cross, joy to the world, those kinds of things Isaac uh, Watts gathered. But back at the Westminster Abbey on the way out, I'm walking past this uh, monument, and it was uh, one of the places, you know, they, Church of England, they would bury some of the famous people of the lands, and so I walked past the um, burial place for Isaac Newton. And interesting, it was right above Charles Darwin's 
tomb. And, uh, you know, it's just striking. We had the opportunity to go to Notre Dame as well in Paris uh, when we were there. Um, you know, there was another royal wedding this last weekend at uh, St. George Cathedral in, in uh, Windsor. And we were there like two days before that wedding. And you walk around there, of course, there you got you know, other kinds of heads of state kind of people and kings and all that part of it. And there's just a richness of history that I come to you with today. And um, I just want to say this. We uh, are a part of a movement that has spanned over generations and centuries and millenniums. And I don't know if Jesus will come back in our lifetime or not. Um, but if not, I know he is coming back and absent from the body, present with the Lord. And many of those tombs that uh, I saw this last week, those people aren't in those graves. They're with the Lord. But um, we have the opportunity to live our life all out for Jesus Christ. And I doubt if there was anybody in here who will have some type of famous cathedral or church built over them or some monument. But every life's important that's lived for Jesus Christ. And as I got caught up in the richness of some of the European history, uh, I know a lot of biblical history, but not a lot of European history. Um, <clears throat> I was just awed with the reality that we are a part of a faith that has historical roots from one generation to the next, worshiping and serving God in the cultural styles that we feel comfortable with, whether it's a loud band or a children's choir and a big stained glass cathedral like I was last Sunday. And we just need to stay at it week in and week out, worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ in everything that we do and coming together in these environments to worship the risen Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it's interesting when you see all these tombs and these memories and you're trying to put church history together. And I've been to Israel a couple times. And so I've been around a lot of those ruins. We're going to be talking about an Old Testament story today that has history to it. Um, there's not one place that you can go in the whole world where you're going to stand um, over a slab in a cathedral or by some monument or some above ground um, uh, tomb that's going to say, here lies Jesus Christ of Nazareth. You're not going to find that because we don't serve someone who's dead. We serve someone who's alive, and that's why we come and we celebrate and we offer up our lives to him afresh and new every seven days. Will you pray with me as we step into our study today? Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that we pray to you directly through your spirit, that wherever two or three are gathered, there you are in our midst. Lord, I thank you for the blessing that my family had this week in Paris and London and some of the richness that we were able to take in, uh, not just with some of the sights and the sounds and the culture, but also some of the history as it relates to your church, Jesus. You have been so faithful through all generations. No era, no time, no church is perfect. But Lord, you are perfect. And we come to worship you in spirit and truth in this hour. And Lord, as we lift our hearts to you, may you dig us into your word and enlighten us through your truth. Continue to set us free because you desire for us not only to have rich and full lives, you desire for us to give you all the glory and bring you praise. And, Lord, that's our desire as we look in your word today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We've been in a series on the crossing. 
the crossing of the Israelites from the east side of the Jordan to the west side of the Jordan. And last week, so grateful for Stephanie Tucker speaking and sharing and pulling in some of the context even of, of that whole journey even still. But today, we're going to talk about not the east side of the Jordan, but the west side of the Jordan. Now, originally, I wasn't going to spend the extra weeks on this series, but because there's continuing fun delays with uh, us being able to relocate into our own crossing into a new building, uh, Marietta Crossing, we get the opportunity to take on some of the other um, richness of the book of Joshua. And so as Joshua has revealed, this whole stepping from the east side to the west side was one dynamic of being able to discover and find God's promised land. But just because you step in to God's purpose and plan for your life, it doesn't necessarily mean that you are enjoying everything that he's called you to enjoy. The Israelites crossed the Jordan River. They set up the monument. They praised God. And then there they are on the west side, and they're like, okay, now what? And all those dots that you have represented there are cities or peoples in cities that they had to take on. Because just because you put your feet on a promised land ground doesn't mean that you now occupy that ground. There's enemies that are on the turf that God was wanting to give and has given you and I in our spiritual life. And so the story is told of them crossing the Jordan River and they landed. I got a little bit of a ring here. Is that good? If I need to move this up and down, we don't really check that too much. Is that once they landed, they sort of made camp at Gilgal. And Gilgal was a, a place along the river, wasn't anything all that big. But the big place that they knew that they had to take on was Jericho. Jericho was a city that had been around for millennia thousands of years and each of these cities a lot of times they weren't a part of some big nation it was the land of Canaan and the Canaanites and there were different fragments of people each of them sort of had their own city state sometimes and that's how you sort of have to view Jericho and Jericho was a place that they knew that if they were going to possess and occupy the promised land they had to take on Jericho how many of you know the story of Jericho how many of you sang that song growing up? Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Jericho. And what happened? And the walls came and tumbling down, right? Some of you are going like, oh, I must have missed that. I, I, didn't, I didn't do that in Sunday school, right? I mean, that was a very uh, ingrained in your mind as a young kid if you grew up in Sunday school. And the walls came a tumbling down. Well, we're going to look at that story today, but this is the, the heart of what I want to present, position to you is this statement here. Live out your inheritance. Don't be defined by your circumstances. Live out your inheritance. Don't be defined by your circumstance. You can take a people out of Egypt and put them in the promised land, but guess what? You still have the people who have Egypt in them in that land. You are conditioned in life to carry with you sometimes good things, but a lot of times baggage from your past into your present day. And I find even in my own life, it's easy to stumble around and not 
find the joy of my inheritance and everything God's wanting to give me because my mind, I'm still stuck in the past or even my present circumstances. And so can you take the people out of Egypt, but can you take Egypt out of the people? What's Egypt and the people? They were enslaved people. They were not free people. We discussed some last week. What happened in the desert, the things that that we carry from the desert, we carry into our present day. And in Jericho, they were confronted with the reality that they needed to operate in a different manner than which they had operated for 40 years. Because their mindset was that of not having their own place, of not having their own inheritance. They were getting up every day, hoping that there was still manna from heaven, all right? And that they were hoping every day that God would bring provision to them. But they did not have their own place, their own inheritance. And God had spoken to them all the way back with Abraham 500 years earlier, 600 years earlier, that they were to have a promised land flowing with milk and honey. Now, have you ever gotten somewhere in life that once you got there, it wasn't what you thought it would be? That didn't happen with us this last week. Europe was everything sort of I thought it would be. I mean, we had opportunity to have a, a, one of those uh, dress-up kind of dinners at night overlooking the Eiffel Tower and all the lights. And Brian had us up in the Shard, which is in London, about halfway up for a high tea one day. Just all kinds of beautiful experiences. The boat ride down the Seine River in Paris, all right, being able to walk along the South Shore, the Thames River in London, and see this. I'm like, this is great. I mean, the only bad thing was that uh, uh, Big Ben, the tower, the clock was in scaffolding, so I couldn't see Big Ben. It was inside the scaffolding, right? But Europe did not disappoint my family when we were there this last week. But there are some times where you take vacations or you experience things in your own life where you step into it and you're like, mm, this isn't really what it was cracked up to be, but everybody told me it was, right? What do you think happened with the Israelites once they got on the west side of the Jordan? They stood up, they looked around. Yeah, it wasn't the desert, some flowing with milk and honey, maybe this and that. But then they realized that there's enemies in the land. And part of me thinks if I was part of that group, it's like, God, why didn't you clean out all these people before we got here? Why is it that you gave this promise, this inheritance, and we stepped into it? And then once we stepped into it, we've got to work. And we've got to labor, and we've got to expand some strength in our own personal spiritual life. And that's exactly what happened. But if we're going to live out our inheritance, we can't be defined by the circumstances we see around us. And this is true of Christians' life as well. Now, maybe you came out of an Egypt. Maybe your Egypt was the fear of death. Maybe your Egypt was sin. And you're glad that God has saved you. But you've not possessed the promised land, some of the tremendous abundance that God wants you to have in your life. And you need to be able to reckon with the reality that you're letting sometimes your circumstances define how you have or have not enjoyed the inheritance God wants you to have as a believer. So let's begin with Joshua 5. Joshua 5 comes on the heels of them just coming across the river, and it says this. Now, when all the Amorite kings of the west of the Jordan... And all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over. Their hearts melted in fear 
and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. So we're told this about the enemies once they step into the promised land, that there's these things that are before them, these people before them, these cities before them that need to be conquered, but it's spoken that they're living in fear because of what God has done with the Israelites. Now, what happens on the heels of this verse is that God has them camp out in Gilgal, and I won't take a day to have a sermon on this, but they did two things at Gilgal. Again, this is a million people, animals, their children, their belongings. They're camped out. This wasn't no just weekend retreat like the students are going to have for their uh, weekend retreat over on the beach. This was the new day. What are we going to do? How do we set up? Not only camp, how do we step up residence? How do we move forward? He had them do two things in chapter 5. One is all the men had to be circumcised. They hadn't been circumcised because the prior generation had died off. And so they were circumcised. Why? They were circumcised as a devotion unto God. And that has historical significance for Hebrew people. And they also celebrated the Passover. So immediately had them camp and pull back into consecrating themselves, dedicating themselves afresh and anew to God, and worshiping Him. And so when you step out of your crossing into a new dimension of life, it's critical to be able to establish that. And so circumcision of Passover at Gilgal is a part of chapter 5. But then we start to step into the story of Jericho. But here's an interesting sidebar to the story of Jericho that oftentimes we forget or maybe we were never taught. Something happened in advance of Jericho that's astounding. It's really astounding, and it defines this beautiful history of some golden years for Israel. Actually, for the next seven years, they conquested, and they took over uh, the Canaan area. They established themselves in the Promised Land. But this story, this little snippet, this scenario here, defines why those seven years are so beautiful. Joshua 3.15 says this, Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Now, you're in foreign territory. God said that he's going to give this territory to you, so you don't know who you're going to meet. And you see this strong warrior type of person, and you're like, oh, this isn't good. And so you approach them and say, hey, are uh, you with us, or are you with them, or what's going to happen? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. This little scenario defines why the Israelites had success in gaining their inheritance. Because it wasn't Joshua who was going to be leading them in the battle. It was God himself. Now, this is what's called a theophany, or maybe more particular, a Christophany, that there is an example of the presence of God, or possibly the presence of Jesus Christ himself in the Old Testament. Uh, are you for us or against us? Who are you? 
that is defined as the commander of the Lord's army. Joshua fell face down. Now, maybe it could have been some great angelic being that was there with the strong sword. But then it has this interesting thing that take off your sandals for where you're standing is holy ground. It's reminiscent of another story in scripture, right, with Moses at the burning bush. And he took off his sandals because the burning bush was God's presence. Here's Joshua before the whole Jericho thing happens, before any other uh, um, stories happen of taking over the land uh, of Canaan. And he confronts good chance. Christ himself, who would later come in the flesh, the son of God, his presence is revealed to Joshua. And Joshua bows down in honor. Joshua, he realizes it's holy ground and he takes off his sandals. This is the one who the story of Jericho is about. Not Joshua, not the Israelites, but the commander of the Lord's army. This is a nice biblical story. We're used to Bible stories. We're supposed to believe the Bible stories. But let me ask you something if you're a Christ follower today. Do you ever, ever think that Jesus Christ could visibly appear before you? You go, where are you going with this, Bowman? I'm just asking because we get into the routine and the rut of our Christian faith so easily. And the presence and the power of God through his son, Jesus Christ, and the present Holy Spirit that dwells within us wants to be that real to us. And we should believe that his physical presence even could come and be revealed. We were on a subway train this week, and it was late at night. We were getting back. Oh, my gosh. Ryan had us going and going and going. We must have walked over 50-some miles, how, how many miles on subways and trains, but we got around to a lot of sites, and it just went off to our face. And we were on this subway, and there was a man walking through that was asking for money because he was poor. Well, I'm very mindful in those situations, having been around New York City and other kinds of situations, maybe you're familiar with the homeless. It's like, well, do you want to condone the behavior? And then they continue to do trafficking of places they shouldn't be trafficked and this and that. And so whether we're tired or we're just not very good Christians, we all just said no and shook our head. And the guy went on and ended up seeing him get off the train and walking forward. And, and I thought to myself, oh, my God, I sure hope that wasn't one of those moments where um, God appeared as an angel uh, to a homeless person. And I just ignore him, the whole Matthew 25 verses. You know, I was hungry and you did not feed me. I was homeless and you didn't shelter me without clothes. But I say that to say this. Our faith is not just some hopeful make-believe. It can be lived out in physical presence. And whether it's us reaching out to an individual that's around us or God revealing himself to us, we should expect something like what Joshua did. It doesn't appear that Joshua was slow to the trigger to be able to kneel, to give his homage to this person and to acknowledge that this was some other being besides just a normal human being. Whether Jesus himself or an angel, he acknowledged that there was someone else leading and interfering in his life in a good way 
to be able to move the people forward to gain their inheritance. Do you believe God could appeal to you? Do you believe that God could show himself to you through his powerful example, his presence? I'm looking through the gate uh, at the John Wesley Chapel and uh, the statue of John Wesley. And across the statue of John Wesley is one of his famous sayings where it says, the world is my parish. And John Wesley impacted the whole world. But John Wesley had an encounter in his life where his heart was strangely warmed and moved. And there was a radical transformation of him having just the typical run-of-the-mill Anglican Church of England kind of Christian experience. And God got a hold of his life and put a fire in his life that was, it was never extinguished, church. Whole Methodist Church, Wesleyan Christians, they come from John Wesley and his influence. John Wesley met powerfully with God. He's standing in the pulpit of Charles Spurgeon. And I'm thinking, how many times a man wants to, it was spoken from that general area. And they still had the same banners over the pulpit there that were there when he was a leader and the impact that he had. Were they living in their past? No, they weren't living in their past because I was just talking to the lay pastor there and they were talking about how they have 700 children come in through bus ministry on Sunday afternoons to minister to them. I'm like, praise God that this isn't a monument to some preacher, but it's an ongoing ministry and a vital part of London. So Charles Spurgeon, a John Wesley, how about you, a Joshua? Have you met with the power of God to be able to go before you and experience all that he wants you to experience in life? These are real stories. They are not legends. And this is not a make-believe story for Joshua. He encountered the commander of the army of the Lord. And from there, they moved out in power and authority. Because you will never be able to gain your inheritance until you realize the one who gives you your inheritance is alive and well and active in your life and in our world. And he wants to impart that to you. So many times our focus is on our circumstances. How has your week been? Did you have a good week? Did you have a bad week? I don't know. Maybe sometimes it doesn't really matter how my week is. I just want to know, is Jesus Christ on the throne today? Is his Holy Spirit filling my life? And do I have the opportunity to serve his purposes in this world? That's what's going to define me. Not as if my circumstances went good or bad this last week. And so here the Israelites are standing on the west side. They're confronted with Jericho. Jericho was a fortified city. It really wasn't that big. It was about 10 acres is all. But it was wrapped with two walls, like a coat of armor that went around it. And these walls were sort of staggered one inside another, and they went maybe, they think, about 40 feet high. It was impregnable. And so what you need to know about Jericho is that there was no hope whatsoever to take over Jericho. And if you can't take over Jericho, you're not going to be able to take, take possession and occupation of the promised land, the inheritance that God has given you. But what are you going to do about that? You're going to turn in fear. You're going to go scratch your head and come up with some other um, device to be able to figure your way of just getting around Jericho and avoiding it. No, you've got to deal with Jericho. And so if you're going to possess the promise that God has for you in your life, you're going to have to take on some of these strongholds that are immediately before you. And so what Joshua did was Joshua adhered to the advice of the commander of the Lord's army says this in Joshua 6.1. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. 
No one went out and no one came in. They were barred up because the people inside had heard about the Israelites and there was some fear. But there was a, a reality that they were going to protect themselves from God's people. Now, the people inside Jericho, we heard the story about Rahab a few weeks ago, except for Rahab, who had a heart that was for God. The people of Jericho really were not good people. They uh, were barbaric people. They were guilty of child sacrifices. They were sort of like a Bronze Age version of the Gestapo. These were evil, violent people. And so God was going to deal judgment with them at the same time that he was going to bring freedom and promise to his own people. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. What do you notice about that statement? It's past tense. If you're a part of the Israelites, you're standing, you're looking at Jericho, you're going, oh, that's a big deal. I don't know if we can take that on or what. The Lord says, I've delivered Jericho into your hand. He did not tell them to take Jericho. He told them to receive what he had already taken because the Lord, the commander of the Lord's army had gone before them and he was going to make this happen. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. Now, if I'm sitting before someone who's a commander of an army, I'm not expecting that battle plan. How about you? Here, come, everybody lean in. Here's what we're going to do. What we're going to do is we're going to just walk around the walls for six days. And we're going to put the priest up at the front with the Ark of the Covenant, which was God's presence, which is a good, important thing. And, and then we're just going to give him ram's horns. Now, there were two kinds of horns. There was a, a, a silver trumpet kind of thing, which was calling people to gatherings. And then there was the ram's horn or the shofar, and that was used to declare victory. And so he's putting the ram's horn in the priest's hands for them to put to their mouth, and they're supposed to walk around for six days. And then on the seventh day, this beautiful strategy is you're supposed to march around the city seven times on the seventh day with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city is going to collapse and the army will go in right up, everyone straight in. In other words, you're not going to have to go. It's just the good. The wall is going to collapse. I'm sure when Joshua had gone back and said, we're going to take on Jericho, most of the army, and there's 40,000 people, they would have gone and, and got their spears and their bows and their arrows. It's like they got, and he's like, hey, you don't need any of that stuff right now. You, you just need to come, and we're going to walk, march around this 10-acre city with these fortified walls. And he tells them that they need to be silent for each of those six days. They're to be silent for those six days, but on the seventh day, after they blow the ram's horn, they're supposed to just shout. Their jaws drop and they go, that's it? That's all we're doing? Yeah, that's what we're going to do. And this city who has been around for millenniums, we're going to seize it and take it over. I don't know what they might have been thinking, but if I was a part of that army, I would have been scratching my head. 
that the commander of the Lord's army went before him, spoke this instruction, and so that's what they stepped into. So they walk around it a single time, encircling it for six days. Have you ever had God call you to do something that seemed to be a little bit silly? Or maybe it wasn't even silly, but he called you to do something by obedience, and you got concerned that he didn't know what he was doing. And he just says, do this. You have this impression in your spirit. You know, God's maybe not speaking to you audibly or no, you know, Lord of the uh, Army showing up in your physical presence. But you just practice putting in to place what God's told you to do. I don't know about you, but I'll do that sometimes for a day or two, maybe even for a month or two. But if I'm doing it for the six days or I'm six months in or maybe you're six years in, and being obedient what God's called you to do, there's a tendency to get a little weary being obedient to God. But he speaks to them and he challenges them. Just follow me. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, Shout! For the Lord has given you the city. All right? I thought about having us do a festival shout. I might need to do that to wake you all up here today a little bit. <laughs> Can you shout? Can you shout the word? Well, uh, that's not going to bring down no wall. How about, how about, uh, I mean, <laughs> you remember this is 40,000 guys. Put yourself in a football stadium today, Right? And they're on the goal line for the winning score. And you're going to be yelling, right? How are you going to yell? Oh, yeah, get it, over the, get it over the line. No, they're going to yell, right? And so they're screaming at the top of their lungs. And just to wake you all up, we'll do a festal shout. You can use the word hallelujah. We'll do it on the count of three, and we'll do it three times. You're ready, and every time it needs to get louder. So on the count of three, you're going to shout hallelujah, which is praise the Lord in every language. One, two, three, hallelujah! One, two, three, hallelujah! One, two, three, hallelujah! All right, that might start to bring a wall down. At least it woke a few, up, few of you up that were drifting on me. They shouted. That was their battle plan, was to shout and praise God. And they were shouting because the Lord had already gone before them to take the city. And so then we find... Joshua, after giving those instructions, he departed and gave something a little bit different than to be expected. He said, the city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. You're like, what? What? Oh, right here, man. We've done it six times around. Let's get out. We're ready to do the shout. And he comes and he instructs them not to do something sinful to make the people liable, Israel liable to destruction. And what was that? I find it interesting. 
by hoarding and being a materialist. And we're going to pick this up next week and see what happens because believe it or not, they didn't obey that decree. But that was an instruction he slips right into them as they're getting ready to do the shouts. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed so that everyone's charged straight in, and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Now, we could get into a big discussion on the whole thing of that sounds awful harsh of God to be able to doing that, but he brought about a judgment on a people that were very wayward in Canaan, but he also did not want the Israelites to be impacted or infiltrated with the false religions and the double-mindedness of those people. Not just them, but he had that instruction for all the cities they went around with, because if you're to gain the inheritance, you cannot allow a stronghold to remain in its midst. And some of us are challenged in this area because we want to do the half-obedience rather than the full obedience, and it will come back to nip us and cause problems later on in life. But he exhorted them to shout. They shouted after the ram's horns were blown. The walls just collapsed right before them. They all went in, and they went in then with their swords and their spears and their arrows, and they took everybody out for the sacredness of providing a place, a promised land that was protected and honoring to God. Now, the lessons they had for the 40 years of their journey, there were several. Humility, devotion, dependence on God. There was vindication because they were these slave people and was God really with them? Those were lessons from the 40 years prior, but God was strengthening them time and again for the lessons of the new day. And the lessons of the new day in the promised land centered on the issue of faith. And that's why I just want to talk briefly here about this whole thing of living out our inheritance and not being defined by our circumstances. Hebrews comes back in the Hall of Fame chapter, and it just simply says this statement. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. By faith. You've heard the phrase, it's not your battle, the battle is the Lord's. What in your life right now is a battle? Is it a relationship? Is it a future that you want to seize even for God's glory? Is it opposition? There's a battle that stands before you and I, a Jericho with insurmountable walls, And we need to be able to conquer that. How do we conquer it? Do we conquer it with passivity? Or do we conquer it with aggression? I would say neither one of those words work very well. You conquer it by resting in the truth that the battle is the Lord's. But even with the battle being the Lord's, the Israelites were not called to just step step back and wait for things to happen. They were to march around the city. They were to have belief. They shouted, God worked, the walls came down. But then they were encouraged to go in and take possession of that inheritance 
of taking Jericho over. And there's this unique balance when it comes to faith. And I like this definition of faith. Maybe you will as well. Faith is belief plus unbelief and acting on the belief part. You get that? Faith is not 100% confidence. It's really not. Now, I'm 100% confident in the Lord, but sometimes I question if I've heard from the Lord. There will always be a measure of doubt within the faith that you're having to take and to seize, to gain what God set before you. There will be doubt. But doubt is a part of faith. Faith has a belief part and an unbelief part, but you choose to act on the belief part. You're standing before an elevator. You have to have belief that an elevator can lift you up to the next few floors. And so you act on your belief and step into the elevator. You need to go to the doctor because you're ill. You believe the doctor maybe can prescribe to you something that can help you get well. And so you act on your belief by going to the doctor. Maybe you've gone to a few doctors and it hasn't worked out, so you don't have belief in those doctors anymore. So you're going to find a new route to go. But faith has to have belief. There's substance that you believe in, but that belief isn't some pure 100% confidence that's going to happen. You will, as a human being, have some double-mindedness, but if you're going to act by faith, you step into that belief part and you act on it. Joshua, I'm sure, as well as the other Israelite leaders, as well as the priests that were carrying uh, the Ark of the Covenant, as well as the rest of the army, they probably had a lot of unbelief. Are you serious? This is the strategy we're to do? God says, yeah, do it. I'm going to show myself mighty. They stepped into it. They acted in spite of maybe some unbelief. And God revealed himself to them. Even though the battle belongs to the Lord, we are called to engage the enemy. And we're called to engage the enemy in four different ways. The first is through worship. You're going to act, even though there's some unbelief, you're going to act by faith, moving forward to gain your inheritance in spite of your circumstances by putting worship at the forefront of your life. Whether God comes through for you or not, you will worship him. And so they put the Ark of the Covenant at the front, actually sort of in the middle. There are people in front and people behind, of course. But in the center of it all, there was the worship of God. And so that's how you act. Coming here today, and whether it's lifting song or encouraging by, by trying to seek some truth out of God's word today, or just be an encouragement to one another, you are in worship. That's an act. You are acting on your belief part. Then there was obedience. Obedience, they didn't murmur around and try to get away. It's like, isn't there some other plan, God, rather than marching around six times and doing the big shouting thing? That's a little weird. No, they obeyed. Whatever it is that God has shown you that you need to be doing and obeying in life right now, don't be double-minded about it. Step into it. Obey. That's acting on your belief. And then there's the faithfulness. Maybe you're journeying around it for the sixth time. It's like, this really going to work? I'm disappointed that we're not in our new building yet. I continue to get instructed by Jesus 
that I need to work on this area of faithfulness. I'm not marching around a building six times, but I sure am passing one week after another waiting for city permits and other people to make decisions on parking and things. I'm like, why? Why is it taking so long? And God just says, you keep marching around a building. You just keep being faithful. Don't you, don't you, this is my battle. It's not yours. This is my move for the people. It's not yours. I'm like, all right. So I step back and I remain faithful. Don't grow weary on day three or day four or day five in your obedience. Stay faithful to God. And then the last is this aspect of spiritual warfare. You know, it was a year ago this month that I was in a pretty intense series on spiritual warfare. Some of you remember it. This battle was in a spiritual warfare realm. And I just want to give focus on that before we close here. Because this is what I believe to be true of you and gaining your inheritance in spite of your circumstances. There are some spiritual battles going on in your life that are like walls of Jericho. And those walls need to come crumbling down if you're going to gain everything God has for you. It may not be a physical wall. It may be that there is guilt in your life because there's issues of sin that need to be dealt with. That's a stronghold for you. It may be that it's not a stronghold of guilt. It may be that you're having a hard time forgiving somebody in your life. That's a stronghold of resentment. Maybe you're a person that's sort of a, an Eeyore. It's like, oh, everything's going wrong in my life. Nothing ever happens that's any good. That's a stronghold of self-pity. Maybe you're a control freak. You have to control everything. And your stronghold is one of pride. You see, they left Pharaoh, but they did not leave fear. And God was using this battle at Jericho to help them fight the fear issue. And the stronghold that came tumbling down wasn't what was needing to happen in the physical wall of Jericho. It's what was happening inside of the person. And if you have walls that are built up in your life and you're not experiencing the freedom and the inheritance God has for you, then you need to call on the Lord of the <laughs> Lord's army the commander of the Lord's army, to tear down those strongholds. Jericho was a stronghold. Strongholds are places that haven't been taken over yet. And there is spiritual warfare in all of our lives as it relates to strongholds. The Jesus war really is this, Colossians 2.15, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. It's Jesus Christ who's the one that can tear down the strongholds in your life for you to gain in the inheritance that he wants. And he's already done the work. He's disarmed the powers. He's going to make a public spectacle of them. He's triumphing over them by the cross. The same thing that happened at Jericho with those people. You're familiar with Ephesians 6. Be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. Huh? There's a battle going on in some of your lives here, even this morning. And that battle isn't one of a material realm. It's of a spiritual realm. And the adversary is the one who's wanting to bring destruction in your life. The devil's scheme. 
2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5 says, For though we live in this world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. So those strongholds that are there that are keeping you from being able to experience all that God has for you in your life, you need to know this. The battle's already been won. The battle is the Lord's. Your active part is to do some shouting and to proclaim to the enemy that he is defeated. The stronghold of guilt, you've been forgiven through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. A stronghold of resentment, God enables you to forgive that person, to extend to them, not forgetfulness, because you're going to remember, but forgiveness. They no longer owe you a debt. The stronghold of self-pity. God's given you an inheritance that far outweighs anything you can comprehend in this world. A stronghold of pride. The Lord's humility is your portion. Let him be the one who is in control. You don't need to be in control. Those strongholds will keep you from the full inheritance. So many Christians, they've come out of Egypt, but they've not possessed the promised land. They've not gained all the fullness that God has for them. We fight from victory, not towards victory. And we fight with weapons that can demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So I end with this. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters and people at the Awakening Church, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that it is the Lord and the Lord your labor is not in vain. Will you pray with me? God, I ask this morning that if there are some Jericho walls that need to become tumbling down in people's lives, that you would encourage them that you've already gone before him, them and won the victory. And Lord, may we surrender to you at every turn, acknowledging that you have provided everything through your death on the cross and the power of your resurrection to be able to set us free. And may we gain an inheritance that far outweighs anything we're pursuing in this life. Lord, if there are strongholds that are keeping people from that inheritance this very moment, I pray that they would just surrender to you afresh and anew. And Lord, may you do miraculous things, establishing them in a new promised land, enabling them to embrace their inheritance and not be defined by their circumstances. Lord, we love you. We thank you for these stories of old that are rich for today. May we gain all that you have by embracing you.